Hello, welcome to this episode of the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In December of 2019 and January of 2020, the east coast of Australia experienced historically catastrophic bushfires. Everyone in the country, and people in many other countries as well, watched in horror as the countryside was engulfed, dwellings were razed, and people and animals killed by the ferocity of fires feeding on a country already devastated by the worst droughts in history. As a mental health practitioner, I felt, like many of my colleagues, that there must be something I could or should be doing to help. But I didn't know what I could do. I wasn't sure that I would know what to do if I picked myself up and went to the fire-affected areas to help out. I wondered if there were many people like me in and out of the fire grounds who felt the same way. That's how the webinar on which this podcast is based was born. Our aim was to help GPs and allied mental health practitioners working in fire-affected areas to understand what the people consulting them were experiencing and how best to help them. I asked Jane Nursey from Phoenix, Australia, a research institute specialising in post-traumatic mental health, to put together the content for me. Jane's a neuropsychologist who also happened to be present in the aftermath of what was previously Australia's worst bushfire disaster in Victoria on what's known as Black Saturday in 2009. Jane invited her friend Jeanette Cook, principal of the Middle Kingslake Primary School at the time it was destroyed in the Black Saturday fires, to join the conversation. And Dr. Sarah Renwick Lau, a GP who practices in the town of Malakuta in far northeast Victoria, a town that was devastated and traumatised on New Year's Eve in 2019 by the fires, agreed to come and talk about what she is seeing in the early aftermath of the fires in her town. Before we begin to listen to the extracts from the webinar, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. To get things into perspective, I first asked Jane to tell us how common trauma experience is in the Australian population. We know that uh, up to 75% of people are likely to experience one, at least one traumatic event in their lifetime and often that might be multiple traumatic events and that may in fact occur in most people before they even reach adulthood. Um, prevalence rates in terms of natural disaster uh, and exposure, uh, these figures are probably a little bit dated now and with increasing disasters could be a little bit higher, but the rates really depend on, on whether we're just looking at uh, uh, general community figures or whether we're looking at first responder or other type groups. But yes, generally speaking, 10 to 15% of people um, based on these figures from a few years ago now uh, was the number of people who are going to be exposed to a disaster. The webinar looked at caring for others and caring for ourselves. We started by talking about what's involved in caring for others in the aftermath of disaster. And the role of the GP, I think, can be summarised as providing early and effective support, assessment and treatment, ensuring an effective collaboration between everyone involved in caring for people and actively and regularly monitoring patients' wellbeing. Sarah, what do you think about that summary? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, and that's that's certainly what the practice is seeing and and providing at the moment, and 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 people are are accessing for um, for that early support and assessment. I think it's really important that we. Um, that we don't let people fall through the cracks and, um, you know, make sure that we, you know, maintain follow-up. But, you know, this is, this is you know, kind of bread and butter um, general practice really anyway. I think that's what we do. Mm-hmm. I guess the challenge at the moment is, is particularly the collaboration because the landscape's changing um, on a daily basis. So we've got mm-hmm. lots of um, support workers, you know, on four-day rotations and maintaining the communication, actually knowing what is available, uh, it, you know, it, you know, can be eligible. Mm-hmm. Um, and developing those net those networks that are robust, and you know that, uh, and, and, and knowing where we can refer our patients is um, is really important. I asked Jane to tell us about the way this sort of trauma impacted on the community as a whole. So we know that trauma and disasters in particular can cause a significant amount of intense emotions, uh, anger, guilt being two of the most prominent. And that happens at an individual level, but those strong emotions then have secondary impacts on the relationships uh, with people around them. And so disasters can really divide communities, particularly when uh, there's perceived inadequacies or inequities in delivery of support, uh, financial support, uh, and that can really tend to tear communities apart. Um, They will tend to come back together again down the track, but there's often this very up and down path of of community members who once were very close, perhaps becoming more distant and angry with each other, uh, and then finding some commonality again. it's really important that communities remain really informed and communicate about what's going on in the community, what recovery options are there to support people, um, helping to provide social support to each other and engage each other in um, social activities and, and positive things that can help the recovery. Jane told us that 50 to 80% of people will recover fully from the trauma of natural disasters with the help of social support and their own good coping strategies. A small proportion of people run a resilient course, not experiencing much at all in the way of psychological distress, and a much larger number follow a recovery course, recovering within two years of the traumatic event and sometimes within weeks or months. A small number, however, appear to have persistent symptoms of trauma, possibly for the rest of their lives, and some who seem to be fine in the immediate aftermath experience a delayed psychological response further down the track. Jane commented that that sort of delayed response is commonly seen in first responders and also potentially what happens to health professionals in these circumstances. And the reality is for many of them there'll be an up and down down course, even those that are in the resilient and recovery path uh, mm-hmm. might have ups and downs. I asked Jane to tell us about the normal reactions to natural disasters. We tend to sort of think about these as falling into different categories of, of how we are as human beings, really. So our emotional responses, uh, what goes on in our bodies. So generally, it's very common to see people with sleep issues, uh, perhaps nightmares, certainly eating and digestion problems, uh, 
generally been quite tense and jumpy and hypervigilant. Uh, extreme uh, intense emotional reactions are quite common uh, with anger, as we've talked about, and guilt being part of that, but also fear and anxiety and sadness. Uh, changes in behaviour. So people uh, might withdraw and, and hibernate away, uh, not want to face uh, people and, and the reality of what's happened. Others might use substances and engage in high-risk behaviours. And others might throw themselves into work as a way of sort of avoiding dealing with the work, um, the issues. And definitely impacts on concentration, attention, memory, difficulties making decisions, difficulty following information, um, those sorts of things. So, Sarah, is this what you're seeing? You're, you're uh, what, a month down the track, five weeks down the track? What, yeah, what of all these are you seeing most of? Yeah, look, this is, um, I guess, the majority of um, what we're seeing now, um, you know, four weeks, four weeks down the track. Um, and certainly, um, you know, all of, you know, people are presenting with, um, you, know, with this, you know, all of these things. Um, you know, particularly particularly issues with memory and concentration. I guess that's something that I um, I didn't anticipate, but um, I guess what we call smoke brain or, or bushfire brain. Um, you know, the inability to tie your own shoelaces, and and then trying to um, you know with with that lack of concentration, making big decisions, um, understanding you know. Um, uh, services and um, insurance claims and, and, and things mm -hmm. that quite a lot of pressure um, to people, particularly after, you know, suffering kind of trauma and, and the loss. Um, and bias. Jeanette was saying this afternoon that, that some of those cognitive impacts can go on for quite a long time. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and four or five years we were still noticing uh, things and some of it, not just the cognitive um, sometimes kids would know their times tables and then you know next week it was totally gone those sorts mm. of things um, but also the triggers that can then happen four or five years down the track and and take them back to where they were Jane listed the common mental health problems seen after trauma. These included sleep problems and nightmares, irritability and aggression, hypervigilance, impaired memory and concentration, as we've discussed, increased drug and alcohol misuse, depression, anxiety, suicidality and PTSD, separation anxiety and increased somatic complaints. Jane highlighted a few of these. So in particular, domestic violence, I think, is one that people don't really think about, but we know and have reasonable evidence to say that uh, rates of domestic violence increase significantly after a disaster, um, you know, that... Uh, reflecting the level of anger uh, and distress in the communities and, and women being particularly vulnerable to that and particularly women who, who might be struggling to cope, being even more vulnerable um, to the impacts of that. But also children, um, you know, being then witnessing the conflict in the family and the violence that might be happening in the family and that adding to, to the difficulties in their recovery. I think the other thing is, you know, 
people often think that PTSD might be the most common mental health disorder following a disaster. But in fact, that's not true. It's more likely to be depression and anxiety um, that we you might see in your practices. Um, or it might be a combination of, of comorbidities with all three of those and substance abuse coming into it as well. Mm. And I think suicidality just requires a special mention that, that it is something that needs to be looked at from early on right through to years down the track that, uh, you know, suicidal ideation and a suicidal um, suicidality generally increases in, in the post-disaster mm. context. I've really found that um, some of the patients who have had you know, treated mental illness uh, seem to have a lot of strategies and, and tend to be managing a little bit better. Um, but what I'm really noticing is that those those people who um, haven't had um, have had mental illness uh, that, that they haven't you know wanted to have treated are now presenting with difficult managed symptoms. We talked about the special mental health issues in children after trauma. The list included impaired academic performance, conflict with peers and family members, withdrawal from peers and family, increased risk-taking and self-harm, awareness of lack of safety in the world, and even overdevelopment of their sense of responsibility in terms of looking after family members, especially when their parents weren't coping well. For toddlers, we see all the usual regressive behaviours, including tantrums and oppositional behaviour, but also the emergence of fears that do not seem to be related to the trauma they've experienced. Interestingly, Jeanette emphasised the delayed oral language development, even in those children who had not even been born at the time of the fires in 2009. We found, Jan, that some of these things were displayed not until about six months after after the event when mm -hmm. things started to settle down a bit. That's when some of those behaviours were shown within the children. So it's really important, isn't it, that we all don't let go of our concerns around this, that we all maintain an awareness that these people have been through something that may in fact be unimaginable to the rest of us um, and that it's going to have long-term impact. What about the interpersonal impacts? It's not a new concept that, you know, people who are highly emotionally distressed have difficulty communicating well with others. And, and when that distress is prolonged and of high intensity, then it can have quite significant impacts on the relationships with others, you know, particularly family and friends, but also with others who might be trying to help and support them. Mm. And uh, so... You know, a, a thing for people, GPs and, and uh, health practitioners to be looking out for is, is just how well is the relationships going within the family. I think the other difficulty, sorry, is um, uh, particularly with disruption. So people are living, uh, they might be sharing houses, um, you know, their opportunities to have privacy within their own families is, is limited. Yeah. Living with, you know, lost houses, living with their family, um, you know, those the normal opportunities for, um, you know, to have those, um, uh, you know, have discussions is, is disrupted as well. And, um, and you know, the publicity of uh, people's lives, you know, people, people's lives are exposed. Everybody knows who, who's lost their house and who um, doesn't have insurance and, um, and that then can 
impact on people's abilities to, I guess, um, you know, walk down the street um, and and be willing to, you know, um, be involved in, you know, normal social activities. The other thing is that it does interfere with their capacity to ask for and seek help and to get help as well and, and social support, which we know is one of the biggest um risk factors for development of mental health disorders and also one of the biggest predictors for, for good recovery is really having good social support. So someone who's very at risk is likely to be someone who can't ask for any help when they need it. Yeah. It's not just a matter of the social support not being there. It's that internal thing of not being able to ask for help when you need it. So what are the other risk factors for adverse mental health outcomes after traumatic events? Yeah, so a good way of thinking about risk factors is to think about um, pre-existing risk factors, risk factors that might have uh, been there during the exposure to the event and uh, things that uh, might be putting them at risk after the event as well. Um, so some of the things that are there before the event are certainly previous exposures to traumatic events and that and that idea of, of there being potentially cumulative impact. Um, prior history of family and or personal mental health problems and as, as Sarah pointed out, those not being well treated or well managed. Um, limited resources, both financial and, and social support resources uh, and ongoing significant stresses. So generally people who are dealing with everyday stresses of survival because they have low incomes or because there's fractures in, in relationships and other things going on. Um, are going to be more at risk. And I guess an important one there, which goes across all three, is poor coping skills, poor emotional regulation skills. Mm -hmm. um, during the event, the, 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 how long it went on for, the extent of the, the threat, um, the extent of the losses they might have experienced and, and witnessed um, the things that they've witnessed during in terms of people dying or being injured uh, are going to add to the degree of risk. Um, and again, you know, how well they coped during it. Uh, did they dissociate? That potentially is putting them at higher risk of uh, a slower recovery or developing a mental health disorder. Uh, following the event, the social support is really, really important. Um, people who isolate themselves or don't have family and friends and aren't well connected into the community um, are generally going to be at much higher risk of, of a poorer recovery uh, than those who have and make use of good social supports around them. And again, that emotional regulation uh, and poor coping styles are going to add to that risk. Sarah was keen to emphasise the need to think about the well-being of children. Um, you know, certainly when you're seeing parents um, using that uh, an opportunity to, um, you know, check in with them about how they're managing with their kids. And I, I know a lot of parents aren't um, immediately confident with uh, finding out how their kids are going and asking the questions because they're, they're concerned about how to respond to that. And so, you know, using... using um, uh, the opportunity, if, certainly if you um, someone presents um, following trauma, uh, to to talk to them about their how, how they're managing with their family and how um, 
making sure that their, their kids are also having an opportunity to um, talk about their, their history as well. We talked about the specific risk factors that are important for children and adolescents. These included the parent mental health and coping skills, the family's support structure, other early life stressors, the strength and nature of the child's attachment and whether there was any family separation in the aftermath of the trauma. Additional risks for older children include pre-existing mental health conditions, levels of pre-trauma fear, poor coping skills and family dysfunction. Jane told us that between 10 and 25% of trauma survivors develop at least a mild mental health condition for some time after a large-scale emergency or disaster. What we need to do is think about this in terms of the severity of the mental health condition that people develop, though. And like the rest of um, mental health care and the rest of healthcare in general, we need to match the severity of the condition with the intensity of the intervention. And as you know, that's what stepped care is all about. Um, we need, in fact, to know at this stage when people are not terribly unwell, perhaps they're undergoing normal reactions or are mildly unwell, uh, to know about psychological first aid. But there may be people out there who are already more severely unwell and require psychological interventions or formal mental health interventions. So it's, we need to make the decision about what level of care they need. Tell us about the five early intervention principles, Jane. So the first of them is, is safety, the idea that helping the person to get to safety, to feel safe, to provide things that are going to build a sense of safety in them is really important. And that includes helping them uh, to calm down, teaching them strategies that might help them to manage their emotional distress in a more effective way. Connectedness speaks to that whole thing of social support, that people who uh, are isolated are at more at risk. So doing anything that we can to connect them to others who can help to build their resilience and, and give them support that they need to get through those early rough um, patches is important. Within that, uh, building a sense of self-efficacy in them, reminding them of their strengths, of um, you know, the strategies they've used to face adversity previously and perhaps coaching them in, in other strategies that might help in this particular instance. Uh, Recognising that they aren't always going to think clearly, so being there to support their, their thought processes in that. Um, and then instilling a sense of hope, reminding them that, yes, you know, things are, in, are very bad at the moment, but they're they're going to improve over time. And while they might not get better uh, in the sense of returning to what they experienced as being normal prior to the disaster, there's this idea of a, a new normal developing and things calming down and getting back to some sort of, of normality. So just to summarise those five psychological first aid principles, they're ensuring safety, returning to calm, re-establishing connectedness, reinforcing self-efficacy and instilling hope for an eventual new normal. In a nutshell, 
it's offering support in all the domains that it's necessary to provide support and helping people maintain their usual roles and routines. So routine really does provide a sense of safety. You know, if things happen on a routine and regular way, then it allows our natural sort of rhythms to, to get back into uh, pace, really, that mm. we, we hope it to be. So, yes, maintaining usual routines and roles is really important. And for those that can't get back to work, really looking for things that they can build into their day in a regular pattern, eating at the same time, going to bed and waking up at the same time, meeting with family members or community members on a regular basis, building in some sort of activity that can promote that a, a normal routine is going to help recovery. There's no set way of, of doing psychological first aid. Um, it, what is important is that you're aware of, of the trauma impacts and you're aware of the likely trajectory of, of people's recovery and you're able to just be there, be empathic and support them and, and meet their needs. The social support that people need after traumatic situations includes emotional support, informational support, practical support and companionship. Yeah, and I think with these it is really important um, as GPs and health providers generally that you are aware of what's available in the local area in terms of who can you refer to, to for uh, patients to receive practical support to get information about what's happening at a recovery level or what's happening at an ongoing bushfire level. You know, it's important that they are able to access factual information um, that is going to reassure them or, or lead them on a, on a step of recovery. So I do think that um, having that information available in your practice is something that, that will be that's a part of the essence of, I guess, providing trauma-informed support. So it, the things that help most are spending time with people, allowing them time to recover because everybody will recover at a different rate, helping them learn about the impact of trauma and know what to expect, keeping to a normal routine or as normal as possible as we've discussed, talking about feelings when but only when they're ready, giving them permission to relax and enjoy themselves, have some regular exercise, and these basic things like remembering to eat and sleep. And the strategies, of course, that hinder recovery include the alcohol and drugs that we were talking about, being too busy, working too much, getting too involved in the stressful situations around it, withdrawing from family and friends and enjoyable activities, avoiding ever talking about what happened. I guess we all know somebody like that. Um, and risk-taking too. Risk-taking, Jane? People take risks. Yeah, so look, I think that that can mean many things. Certainly, excessive use of drug and alcohol uh, substances, uh, promiscuity, increasing promiscuity, um, perhaps driving fast or, or engaging in activities where they're seeking that adrenaline rush to sort of help them feel a bit more uh, normal, if you like. Um, all of those sorts of things are quite common, particularly uh, in uh, youth and, and men perhaps more so than women. There's a whole range of different things that you can um, 
support people with in terms of teaching them strategies uh, or building their repertoire of strategies that help them to calm down, help them to manage their emotional reactions um, and get their brains back into a level where they are able to think and, and concentrate on things, uh, helpful thinking and grounding practice. Mm. Controlled breathing is perhaps one of the most helpful, so simple, but and people tend to just dismiss it, but it actually is probably one of the most helpful things to teach people. Um, and just being there, allowing people to speak, being there in an empathic way um, where they don't have to feel the silences, can talk, can be cry, can can be upset without um, needing to stop that or, or divert them away from it. So supporting children is really important. And Sarah was talking about encouraging parents to talk with their children and encouraging them to express themselves. And Jeanette, I've heard, I can't remember whether she said it this webinar or not, I've heard talking about um, uh, teaching kids to have the language that they need in order to talk about their feelings. They need to be reassured that they're safe and comforted and they too need to keep a routine going. What about the minimising access to media thing? How does that work, Jane? So I, I think it beca it's becoming more and more of an issue, I guess, as, as social media has become such a prolific thing, particularly in young people, and they can get totally absorbed into uh, Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds and, and everything else where a whole lot of information, uh, they're getting confronted with a whole lot of information and other people's traumatic experiences that just adds to their distress, really. Mm -hmm. So really important to minimise as much as possible their access to that or the amount of time they might uh, view or listen to media and being there to, as a parent or caregiver, to talk to them about what they're hearing and, and give some reality checks to it and, and perhaps normalise some of the uh, mm -hmm. stuff that's there. One of the things I've found really, I've found when people tell their stories is that, um, you know, they, they might be, might be very a very emotional thing, particularly as they get to a point where you know maybe they felt that they their life was at risk, and then being able to continue that discussion and and ask them um, about when they you know when when the first time was that they felt safe, and I think for for children, um, I've I've found that really helpful is to you know to continue that story on to the point where that they felt safe, and. Uh, yeah, remembering to to continue to ask and not leave people at that point where um, then I thought I was going to die. Mm. So um, yeah, and feeling feeling comfortable about letting people tell a story and, and letting them know that their responses are normal. Can I, can I just add there, and Jeanette, you might want to come in here, but I think schools become a really important pathway for children to. Um, find support to be able to start telling their stories and to, um, you know, have a, an opportunity to explore what's gone on and how they're feeling about it. They certainly do. Um, through writing, Jane, uh, artwork, uh, drama, those sorts of things, we actually found that a lot of music, drumming was really important. Um, 
helped the kids as well express themselves in a perhaps a non-verbal way. The school's also a, a place where parents often tell their stories too. If someone's distress extends two or three weeks beyond the, the trauma, then there are free counselling sessions available. The social workers in the mobile service centres in the, the fire-affected areas can find that counselling for you. That's part of their job. And, of course, the, you can also get free counselling sessions from the primary health networks. If patients do need face-to-face help in the private sector or telehealth help, there are now item numbers that apply, that give people 10 extra sessions over and above the 10 sessions they get from Better Outcomes. It's not just our patients we need to look after under these circumstances. We also need to take care of ourselves. The key messages are that our level of resilience can change from day to day. And as care providers, we need to actively take care of our own emotional well-being. We need to check in on how we're doing and look after our physical health, our relationships, our mood and motivation, and our productivity and performance. It's also good if at least one other person is keeping an eye on those things for us important to be engaging in self-monitoring and making sure that you've got some routine that allows you to take a break every day, uh, take some weekends uh, and do things that are going to make you feel good. I think at the moment living in a very, um, I guess, an environment where there's a lot of people who are, um, you know, I guess, hypervigilant, anxious, maybe, you know, hyper-aroused, um, that um, that does, certainly does rub off. And I think when you're in that state, it's very hard to prioritise what's important. Um, and, and I think certainly, um, you know, certainly for myself, trying to uh, fix all, a whole heap of things at once um, uh, has been, I guess, a, a big issue. And, uh, uh, just for, and, and being able to kind of remind myself of... Um, you know that uh, you know. I guess all the the, the protective self talk seems to have kind of gone out the window. Um, and so the other thing I think as well is that I had working in a small remote town. I've had a lot of very carefully placed boundaries, which have have allowed me to practice in a sustainable way. For, you know, for a long time. And um, really, on you know, on this on the first of February, those all those boundaries just got. Um, first of every first of January, all of those boundaries just got bulldozed, you know. And I think I, I almost took to them myself with a bulldozer, and um, and so now I guess now I'm in a in a new environment um, where those boundaries have been, um, you know, kind of torn down, and you know, managing work life balance within that is is um, I guess not as easy. It's a difficult mm-hmm. anyway. So, yeah, I think, and certainly doing that within that kind of hyper environment is, is also challenging. Mm-hmm. Jeanette, what was hard for you? Um, I guess the being in a school environment, the school hours was the, the people time and therefore all the admin stuff had to be done after mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. it's sort of switching off, um, you know, it's, bit hard when you can still be replying to emails at two and three o'clock in the morning so it 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 was switching off and also because 
you you want to do the best and you want to be at the best support you can. You want to solve everybody's problems, I suppose. That's why we're in these sorts of careers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that and 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 um yeah, being exposed to so many private things, I think, which you're not usually exposed mm. to. So that's that what Sarah was talking about, that boundary stuff that mm. suddenly disappears for you and there's mm. nothing there to protect you. What about you, Jane, your post-Black Saturday experience? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, similar sorts of things, you know, working in an environment that's just so different to what you're normally used to where you're confronted every minute of the day with distress of other people, of um, scarred physical environment with very long hours um, and just really needing to take time to acknowledge the impact that that is having um, and share it with someone, you know, debriefing with a colleague, having someone that you can actually talk to that stuff about mm-hmm. becomes really mm-hmm. important. The other aspect of all this, there's not just ourselves, there's the rest of our team. And if we happen to be managers or in charge, but, uh, or even if we just happen to be ordinary team members, we need to... to be looking after each other and putting things in place that help us look after one another. And Sarah, you said something wonderful to to me this afternoon. What was that about about giving leave to your staff? Oh yeah, um, yeah. So we gave we we gave all our staff um, staff um, salary continuance um, from this from the time of the fires, and and then we just asked them to come to work when they when they could. So um, I guess we were fortunate in that we had access to some volunteer staff who um, who were experienced in administration and nursing and um, and even GPs. And the idea to me was a little bit, you know, it seemed to be strange. And I, and you know, we said, oh, we you know we need all this help. And and then we looked around and realised it was you know the, the practice manager, myself, and one um, very pregnant admin staff, and we actually had no one else there. So. Um, so we were fortunate with that, but, um, but I've really found that's made a really big difference. I can see, um, you know, that what could be very stressful, uh, you know, a nurse was able to take two weeks of study leave, um, which is really, she, you know, has meant she's come back in a, in a much better, um, mental state and just having the flexibility for self-care, um, you know, you, you talk about self-care, but then you can actually providing that to staff, I think is really important. So you've heard a good deal of the story from Webinar 36. I hope it's been helpful for you. If you'd like to review this material and view the PowerPoint, the on-demand webinar is available via the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website. Thanks for listening today. I'll see you next time.